0: So we're actually, we're continuing in Leviticus today. Today we're looking at Leviticus 11. So we weren't here last week because of the snow, but two weeks ago we looked at an overview of the law. In other words, when you read all those laws in Exodus and Leviticus, and then they're unpacked more, or I should say they're repeated in Deuteronomy before uh, the Hebrew people go into the promised land. Um, We talked last week or two weeks ago about what are those laws all about, and we talked about how the law is essentially divided into three broad categories of ethical laws, of ritual or religious laws, and then laws of how to operate, national laws, almost like a constitution. And so we talked about how to understand these laws. And so if you have not listened to that sermon—now some of you guys, I see some new faces visiting— Um, I'd encourage you to do that because that's always a very common question. Well, what's the deal with that law? You know, how come I can't wear a a polythread sweater um, in the Old Testament or can't get a tattoo to remember my mom and those kinds of ideas? Um, And so um, rather than unpacking it again, listen to that sermon so you can be on the same page. Today we're looking at Leviticus 11, which is all about food laws. Now, I have, Gene and I have done a significant amount of traveling um, over the course of our life um matter and i think that's one of the reasons why the pandemic has was so hard has been so hard for me and for gina but me especially because probably i was in the habit of traveling internationally two to three times a year for ministry purposes and we've been to some weird places and we've eaten some weird food when gina and i were in japan we were in rural japan um as in when we came to japan um, there was only three non-Japanese in the prefecture where, where, we, where we were. And then when we arrived, everybody in the prefecture knew two new people arrived. And so we would go to the store with the workers who were there, and everybody had already heard about how Gina and I were in town, and this sort of thing. And so we ate some food in, J- in Japan, which was very unique. Um, and probably the most unique experience we had in Japan was we went out to lunch with a woman who... Who um, wanted to honor us because we for, prayed for her and her husband, and she brought us out and she ordered food for us. And um, in Japan, they don't—at least, you know, maybe in Tokyo, it's different. But where we were in Fukuoka, they don't give you a lot to drink, like water, at the meal. You know, it's basically if they give you anything, it's very small, like we would think of like a, a espresso cup. And but the and that's and that's not a big deal except the food that was being ordered was a little challenging for me to eat because it was just food I wasn't accustomed to. And normally that's fine as long as you have something to drink where you can help, you know, (laughs) wash it down, you know, let's swallow this fish head whole, you know what I'm saying? That was challenging. When we were in Indonesia about five or six years ago, um, I was tricked into poaching a giant clam. I didn't know what I was doing, officer. The man tricked me. And I, we free dived down and picked up this clam that was like the size of this guitar amp. And we're, and we're um, going back to our host family and there's a clothesline that had big pieces of snot, about this big, hanging over the clothesline, covered in flies. And we thought, well, that looks gross. I don't, someone has a sinus infection. And then what we realized was it was the strips of the clam that was drying in the sun And we were, lo and behold, served it later that day. Um, One member of our team did get violently ill. His (laughs) name is not Matt Newby. Um, Another time, we were in Southeast Asia and were given something called, I think it was called Sinogi. Where's David? Sinongay, which is like the pith of a tree mixed with water. And if you thought the giant clam looked like snot, you have no idea. Maybe David can share his video with you and you can see it. This was, had the, such consistency of like slime that you had, to, you had two sticks and you had to wrap the sticks as quickly as possible and keep them moving because otherwise it would just fall off the sticks and then just slide it into your gullet. I don't know if any of this stuff was kosher is my point. <laughs> I have no confidence that any of it was actually kosher. Maybe the, maybe the tree pith, because that wasn't cloven foot. So anyway, we're talking about food laws today, and I'm not going to read the whole chapter to you. Um, I would encourage you to read it if you have not, um, because I want—I don't want to just, you know, unpack for you all of the things that they couldn't eat in the ancient Hebrew world. I want to explain to you what the purpose was and then how that fast-forwards into the new covenant, and then how that bridges into your life today in 2022. But if you look at Leviticus chapter 11, um, you'll see literary markers. And this is just a uh, like a real, something to take a note of as you go and read the Bible on your own. Um, and by the way, this is one reason, I'm not picking on your Bibles, but this is one reason why we suggest you read something like the English Standard Version, or the New American Standard Version, because if you read a more dynamic, readable version, they often eliminate the literary markers. And so if you read a stricter word-for-word as opposed to thought-for-thought translation, this section is broken down into six sections marked by these dot, dot, dot right? And that's how you know where the divisions are in the text. And so, and of those, these six sections, it's broken down into two larger sections, the first of which is clean or unclean animals, and the second, which has to do with death, uncleanliness as a pollutant, okay? And so let's just unpack those six six, uh, sections so you can understand what the food laws were, and then we're going to jump into um, understanding what they mean. Does that make sense? Okay. Don't get hung up on the snot, the stuff. But um, we will show you pictures. Okay, so in in chapter 11, verses 1 to 23, this is where we have the section of clean and unclean animals. The first section is the first eight verses, verses 1 to 8, and that is the section of the cloven foot, all right? These are animals with a cloven foot. And so basically, if you look, if you were going to read this, I've summarized it for you a parted hoof, plus a cloven foot, plus if the animal chews the cud, um, you know, that's like when they like, spit it back up and they chew and they swallow it, it's clean, you can eat it, all right? If it's got a cloven foot, a parted hoof, and it chews the cud, it's clean. But those three things have to be in place for it to be considered kosher back then. If there's any inconsistency within those three sections, then it becomes unclean. Okay? And so there needs to be consistency. So for example, a camel chews the cud, but it doesn't part the hoof. Therefore, it's unclean. It's not consistent. The pig is cloven-footed and parted hoof, but it doesn't chew the cud. Therefore, it's unclean. It's not consistent in that created order, if we can put it that way. The horse, it's unclean. You got to save it for glue sticks, not for eating. Okay? I don't know if they still do that, but the point is that with these animals, they break the norm. These are the three things parted hoof, cloven foot, choose the cud. And if, it's, if it fills in all three of those consistently, it's considered clean or kosher, right? If it breaks one of those, it's unclean. It breaks the norm. Um, you can't eat it. In some cases, you shouldn't even touch it. All right, the second are, has to do with water animals. So this is in verses 9 to 12. Water animals, if they have fins and if they have scales, they're clean. But if they have no fins or no scales, if it's not consistent, then it's unclean. Um, And it doesn't actually use the word unclean in this section. It actually uses the word detestable. Or if you have uh, like the King James, it uses abomination. It's an abomination. Shrimp, an abomination to the Lord. Lobster, get that bottom feeder out of here. It's an abomination. Nobody should eat an eel. Okay? Okay. That's, that's the idea here. The Hebrew people, in their framework, were commanded to abhor things that were unclean. Not just don't eat them, but detest them. Right? Detest them. And we're going to get to why this is um, important in a little bit. But you can understand why a good little Jewish boy or girl would absolutely turn their nose up at Gentile culture... Gentile just means non-Jew, right? In the Jewish mind, there's, there's Jews and there's Goyim, right? There's Jews and there's Gentiles. That's it. There's two types of people in the world, and you ain't a Jew, all right? And so you can understand why in the Hebrew perspective it would be disgusting and detestable. You can understand in the Hebrew world, um, for example, even in the Second Temple period when Jesus walked the earth, that the Israelites who were living under Roman occupation in Jerusalem would be disgusted by the Gentiles who were trampling them underfoot. All All of their practices were detestable. Their clothing was detestable. Their, their, Their sexual... Um, promiscuity was detestable these things were detestable to them so fins and scales clean, you break one of those it's unclean, eels, shrimp lobster, nessie unclean okay, my wife thinks I'm funny (laughs) it's the Loch Ness monster guys look it up on YouTube it's legit salmon salmon It's clean. High in omega fats, good for you. Okay? The water animals that break the norm, the norm being fins, scales. If you break the norm, it's considered unclean. If it sticks with the norm, it's clean. On the next section, these referring to birds. Um, God lists a bunch of birds here that are off the menu for the Hebrew people. The birds listed, interestingly, if you look at that list, the interesting thing about those birds is they are all either predators or carrion birds, okay? That's, a, that's the commonality. Now, it's not an exhaustive list of carrion birds or an exhaustive list of predator birds, but every bird listed there is a predator bird or it is a, or a carrion bird. And so I think the point is that they consume things that are dead or things that are uncooked with blood, things that are unclean. And so in other words, these birds are consuming unclean things. They're not eating berries. You know, they might be eating a dead camel. You know, that kind of idea. And therefore, the bird is unclean. It also goes on to talk about insects. It says that winged insects are acceptable to eat if they fly. But if they have wings but can't fly, it's like an insect version of a penguin. It's unclean. You can't eat it. Um, There's a sense in which it's not natural. It's not natural that this insect has wings but can't fly. It's not natural that this pig is cloven-footed and parted hoof but doesn't chew the cud. It's not natural that this thing lives in the water but doesn't have scales and fins. I think that's one of the themes. Now, I I will say this. With 100% confidence that will make all of you very encouraged that I'm here today that no scholars agree on anything that's going on in this section of scripture. And, and I say that in jest, but it really is the truth, okay? So there's really a couple main views of what could be happening in these laws. Some think that the unclean animals all relate to Canaanite practices. Now, Canaanites were the, the non-Jewish, non-Israelite people who lived in this part of the, of the world, right, before the Jews came in and God gave them the promised land. And they had detestable practices. They would sacrifice their children to Moloch. You know, they practiced cult prostitution, all of these things. They ate lots of things. And so some some scholars think that all of these lists of clean, unclean are related to distinguishing the Israelites from the Gentiles, from the Canaanites. In other words, Canaanites love bacon. You can't eat bacon, that kind of idea. Canaanites eat that. My people don't eat that. And so that's one main theory. Another theory is that the unclean animals are somehow tied in with a Hebrew cultural understanding of death in the Israelite mind. I have no idea what that means. (laughs) Um, But that is one of the main views, okay? Personally... I think the laws are built around this idea of seeming violations of the created order of things. To me, that makes the most sense. But then again, I'm not an ancient Hebrew person, right? And so maybe somebody from a few thousand years ago would say it's obviously the cultural understanding of death, but I don't know. And and no scholar will agree on this. I, I really am being truthful. But these are the three main views. And so I think there's an idea that there's a created order and then when that created order is violated, it is considered unclean. Lives in the water but doesn't have fins. It's, 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 not, it's violating its created order. By the way, if you've ever studied the book of Jude, I think you see this same pattern in the book of Jude, right? What you see in the book of Jude is that God has a created order of authority, and then the characters that are listed in the book of Jude, the men of Sodom and Gomorrah... Cain, Balaam, all of these characters who are blasted by Jude, these are all figures of they rejected the created order, and so by rejecting the created order, they rebel. The impact of rebellion uh, against God culminates in these practices, which we're not going to unpack here. This is in the book of Jude. And so I think it's the same kind of idea, that these, these creatures, they're violating the created order, and they're breaking out of the norm, and so they're considered unclean. Um, truth be told, none of those three main systemic approaches to understanding the law actually fit perfectly. All of them are confusing on one level, and then that's, that's exacerbated by the fact that none of the lists are um, exhaustive, right? And so then you say, well, what about this, and what about that, and what about this, and what about that? How come I can't eat that, but I can't eat that? We know you can't eat a seagull, okay? And as living near the shore, we understand why they're filthy animals, okay? And so um, no system really fits perfectly. But this is what you need to know because as a follower of Christ, as a student of the Bible, as a seeker who's reading the Bible, it's very easy to read this chapter or chapters like this and you get really distracted and you say, see, no scholars can even agree this is why the Bible is not real. Um, but verses 46 and 47 make it very clear why. And the why is far more important than the specifics, okay? Um, there's a couple discipleship groups that have asked me questions about Leviticus over the last few uh, weeks, and I always tell them the same thing. You need to really focus on the spirit of the law as you're reading this and not get overly obsessed with the specifics of the law. A question came up this past week about Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy, it says that no man with, a, with crushed testicles can go into the temple and neither can a Moabite. And so we said, well, what does this mean? What does this mean? Uh, Because it's strange for us. And I said, but you need to understand that the way the Hebrew mind works is not all Moabites are Moabites. Like Moabite meant something. It's an idiomatic phrase. David was the descendant of a Moabite because his grandmother was Ruth. So David is technically part Moabite. And so there's something else going on literarily when you read these things. And so you have to focus on the why. And this is the why. Although the specifics of the meaning is muddy, the purpose of the laws is clear. Verses 46 and 47, to help God's people as holy people and a holy God to distinguish between ritual cleanness and ritual uncleanness. That's the big point. The point is God wants them to understand the difference between being ritually clean and ritually unclean. And we're going to double back to 46 and 47 in a minute. So that's that first part. Remember I said there's six parts. That's the first part of the six. The second half of the six is related to verses 24 to 46. And here we transition to uncleanliness and pollution. Um, In verses 24 to 28, we see that uncleanliness pollutes, okay? And so you picture unclean as like a slime that just kind of spreads and it tarnishes everything that it touches. And so the general idea here is that it's not just about don't eat that food, but it's about that when that, you know, deceased pig touches things, everything that it touches becomes unclean. And the unclean... Um, just kind of spreads like a like an infection throughout God's throughout the camp, throughout where God's people live. Um, death, at the carcass, the death is considered a polluting concept because it stands in opposition to a god of life, right? And so the Lord our God, who's a god of life, a holy God, when these things are in His sacred space. You know, the pillar of fire is here, the tabernacle is here, the camp is here. And if you look at all those regulations for the camp, they had to set up their tents in a very certain way and everything. This is a very sacred area where the Lord your God is in your midst. You need to go to the bathroom outside the camp, you need to drag those unclean things outside the camp. This is God's space. And when pollution comes in, then the space gets infected, and then you need to go back to Leviticus 1 through 5 and go through ritualistic sacrifice to clean the space. Right? That's what we've been unpacking over the last month or two, or however long it's been. So uncleanliness pollutes. The second section, 29 to 38, is the idea that varmints pollute. That was my term I used to summarize that, varmints lizards, mice, um, varmints, pests, they pollute. They're unclean to eat. They're the most unclean of all things that swarm. That's what it says here in this section. They're unclean to touch when dead. And not only are they unclean to touch when dead, but if you find a dead lizard or a dead mouse in your uh, bread bowl you have to not just clean it out. you got to break it. you got to throw it out because now your bread bowl is considered unclean, and when you make bread, the bread's going to be unclean, and it's going to be unfit for you to consume because then you'll be unclean, and anybody else who touches your bread will be unclean, and you can see how infection of uncleanliness spreads throughout the area. And then the final pollutant that we see here is death. Death is a pollutant. Now, surely there would be much to say... And some of it might be forced allegory for us to talk about how these things are spiritual representatives of sin and the curse and the spread of sin and death and how these things infect and spread throughout the world following Genesis 3. But it wouldn't be a far stretch to realize that there are spiritual undertones to all of these things, right? Even clean animals are unclean after they die which underscores the ideas we're going to see in the next few weeks that it's not unclean if it's bad. You know what I mean? Like a clean animal that dies isn't a bad thing, but it's still considered unclean. So the big idea is this, 46 and 47. This is the law about... So if you have your scripture journal, I would mark it, circle it, bracket it, so that you understand this is the point of the chapter. The point of the chapter is not primarily that you can't eat shrimp. The point of the chapter is verses 46 and 47. This is the law about beast and bird and every living creature that moves through the waters and every creature that swarms on the ground. Why? To make a distinction between the unclean and the clean and between the living creature that may be eaten and the living creature that may not be eaten. The whole point is to determine what is clean versus what is unclean. See, the Mosaic ceremonial laws distinguish between clean and unclean. Their purpose is to instill an awareness of God's holiness, a reality of sin, a reality that commonness, right? Holy means set apart. Common would be common. It's not set apart. That commonness is a barrier to fellowship with a holy God. In other words, eating clean didn't actually make you clean. You could, re, could refuse to eat a pig, but you could be a closet creep. You're just not necessarily ceremonially dirty. And this leads to the prophetics, right? So that we are in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. We see this concept that comes out. And then we realize that when we get to the prophets who are writing after this time period, they're looking back at the law. They're writing sermons. They're preaching those sermons to the people of Israel as warnings, change your act or you're going to get exiled, right? As they're going through that, they're looking at the law and they're proclaiming to the people. And this is the message in summary, that they're saying, You honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. You honor me with your taste buds, but your heart is far from me. You honor me with the way that you dress, but your heart is far from me. You honor me with your obedience to the ceremonial law, but your heart is far from me. And so when we finish the Old Testament, the first half of the Bible, and we get to the New Testament, when Jesus arrives, we realize this is the situation. You have a culture, a Pharisaical culture of religious leaders who desire, truly desire to follow the law. I mean, they want to follow it. They're so desperate to follow it that they created new laws because someone said, well, can I eat a swallow? And they said, well, I don't know. Can you eat a swallow? And then they would discuss that and they would put it in a rabbinical law to help unpack what was written in the in the Deuteronomic law, okay? And so there's this oppressive system in place when Jesus shows up where you really never know how you're doing, right? Because you have this system that you're going through, how far you can walk, how you can dress, what you can eat, what you can't eat, what you can do, what you can't do, but maybe your heart is terrible. And that's exactly what Jesus is going to push on and get to the core of. And so now we're jumping to the new covenant, the, the promise of God as revealed in the, the New Testament, Mark 7, verses 14 to 23. And so in your Leviticus journal, you know, feel free to write on at, at chapter 11, you know, CF, Mark chapter 7, 14 to 23, you know, or CF, Acts chapter 10, because those are chapters that go back and talk about food law. Yeah, Mark chapter 7, 14 to 23. Or Acts chapter 10 was another passage I was going to do. But then I would have had to cut out all my jokes in the beginning. Uh, Mark 7. So in Mark 7, we realize that Jesus is going to cut to the core of all of this. And he's going to explain that the problem of the defiled human heart is much deeper than issues of food. And not only is it much deeper, but it's far more serious than mere ceremonial impurity. Okay, the core problem of defilement is not about whether or not you ate a camel, but it relies it resides in the in your heart, um, the core of your being. That's when they said heart; they meant the core of your being. And so, verse fourteen and fifteen, this is what happened. Jesus is out preaching. And Jesus calls the people, all of the people who are out milling around, he calls them to him again, and this is what he says. He says, hear me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And then he walks away. You know, sometimes when we read those paragraphs, we just keep reading. And we forget that there's a scene change. Like Jesus just kind of throws that out there and leaves. That's all he does. He walks away. And now what Jesus just said in that very simple sentence flies in the face of everything they've been told. It flies in the face of everything we just briefly unpacked from Leviticus chapter 11. So what do we do with that? Is Jesus a false teacher? Is this why the Pharisees wanted to kill him? I mean, is he speaking against the law of Moses? And so then later in verse 17, when he entered the house, so there's a scene shift, and the people left, he didn't explain it to them, then his disciples asked him about it. They asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Oh, thanks, Jesus. (laughs) He says, do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart, right? Jesus isn't talking about cholesterol. He's talking about the core of your being. Since it, not, it doesn't enter his soul right, or his heart or his, his being, but it enters his stomach and is expelled. It says thus, and this is you know, the, the author interpreting for you, thus he declared all foods clean. Interestingly enough, Mark is considered Peter's gospel, right? Even though it's not called the gospel of Peter, it's called the gospel of Mark. Mark wrote it, but it's considered Peter's gospel because Peter informed Mark. And Peter is the one in Acts chapter 10 who has this experience where God reinforces what Jesus tells him and lays down a sheet with all manner of unclean things and says, eat, Peter, thereby declaring all foods clean and also preparing Peter's heart, to see the gospel for the first time come to non-Jews, to Gentiles, okay? And he said, verse 20, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. And so Jesus is getting at a much different, much deeper type of defilement. And the question becomes, if you're, if you're one of Jesus' followers and you're sitting in, in that room and you're trying to eat clean, and then you say, well, how do, I get, like, how do I get that clean? How do I get my heart clean? And this was the new covenant, the old covenant. I have to cut out your heart of stone. I need to give you a heart of flesh. David said, create within me a new heart, O God. You need a new heart. That's what we need. Nothing on the outside, this is the point, guys, if you zoned out this whole time, nothing on the outside can make you clean with God. No religious action, no attendance, no activity, no incantation, no um, you know, reciting a prayer any number of times. None of those things can actually make you clean. The only thing that can make you clean is what we theologically refer to as the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. You need to be clean, cleansed from the inside out. Peter says that it's about putting the imperishable word of God within your soul, and then that imperishable word grows and grows and grows. The gospel is planted, and it takes over, and it changes you from the inside out. This underscores the lie of religion. Religion doesn't save you. Religion damns you to hell. Why? Why? because religious checkboxes i'm saying that to get you know get you all worked up religious checkboxes give you the illusion that you're doing just fine until you're dead and you realize you missed the boat entirely you can never be good enough you can never check enough boxes jesus did all that for you for free and then gives you his righteousness as a gift we'll leave, we'll end with this this um No, we won't end with that. Never mind. (laughs) Oh, I got to jump ahead. So the point is this. We see this in Romans chapter 8. Paul explains. Paul wrote about half the New Testament. He said, God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. So the law couldn't do it. By sending his own son, in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, but he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. And how do you walk according to the spirit so that I can have this law fulfilled in me? Verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh but in the spirit if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Oh, so I need to have the spirit of God dwell in me and then the law is fulfilled, and then I'll be cleansed, finally, because anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So in other words, you need to um, have the Spirit of God dwell in you. Well, how do I do that? Well, you don't do anything. Jesus does it. You don't do anything to get in the Spirit, to get the Spirit. He does it to you. He does it for you. It is a work that God is doing in you, and it's a a work that we realize by faith as God opens up our eyes. See, Jesus came and did what you and I cannot do because we're weakened by the flesh. So the perfect God comes in a human body. He beats sin and the law at its own game because unlike us, he isn't weakened by the flesh. And in so doing, he fulfills the law of God on your behalf and mine And then he blows the doors up from the inside out. He grabs you, regenerates your heart to life. He moves you into the spirit world so that now flesh has no eternal power over you. He regenerates your inner man so it's alive. And even though now it's still trapped in a body of death waiting for redemption. See, this is what the gospel is all about. And we believe in that. And as we believe it, we receive it. And that's why it's good news because I don't have to worry about whether or not I had a Sanagi sandwich for lunch, okay? So for the original audience in Leviticus who's hearing these laws, you're realizing, I can't just do whatever comes naturally to me. I can't just eat whatever I want, that God is holy and I am common and there's a barrier between us. But then for the original audience in Mark, Jesus says, look, It's far worse than you realize. It's not about bacon. You don't need to just get cleansed on the outside. You need a complete inner cleansing of your soul, which you have no idea how to do because you can't do it, but I can do it for you. And then you can receive it by faith. And so that's what it meant for the original audience, Leviticus. That's what Jesus' words in Mark 7 meant for the original audience in the gospel. And so what does it mean for us? And this is what it means. Religion. Some of you are very religious, right? You know, you are you raised going to church and you, you say your prayers and you do this, you do that. Religion can't save you. But Jesus can. That's the point. Abiding the laws can't save you. But Jesus can. Trying to do all the right things can save you, but Jesus can. And this is what Paul, again, I know I'm going long. This is what Paul, again, writes in Colossians. He says in in chapter 2, beginning in verse 16, he says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard, so when Christians say to you, well, you know what, God wants you to eat this food, not that food. He says, let no one judge you in regard to what you eat or drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These things are a shadow of the things that are to come, but Christ is the substance. You know, strict Sabbatarians who they shut off their phone and they don't do anything over the course of 24 hours because they got to obey the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a shadow of the rest you have in Jesus. Freedom from work, the work that couldn't save you in the first place. And now you get to enter into his rest by his grace. All these things are shadows, but Christ is the substance. Don't settle for the shadow. Embrace the substance. In verse 20, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why? As if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to them? Listen to this, okay? Listen to this, because this basically summarizes everything. He puts in quotes, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish. He says, according to human wisdom, these ideas do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. They have the appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body. Okay, so what is Paul saying? He's saying if you say, don't eat that, don't touch that, don't do that. He says it has the appearance of wisdom where it looks like it can make you godly. But this is the reality. Last half of verse 23. Verse 23. They are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. They just have the appearance of it. You didn't deal with your sin issue, you just got a better cage, is the point. Because you need to be cleansed from the inside out. Paul is interpreting for us from Leviticus through Mark 7 and Acts chapter 10 into the new covenant. He's a good expositor and exegete of the world that we died with Christ to the ways of the world. And so the advice of the world, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, does not work for us. Indeed, it works for no one. The point is this. Don't expect the law to accomplish what only grace can do because it can't do it. Religion can't save you. Jesus can He came to fulfill all the religious requirements of the law on your behalf. So acknowledge the reality that you cannot make yourself right with God of your own accord. Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. That's the glorious good news that our Savior gave us.